0: Please turn me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will be in verses 1 and 2 for the congregational reading. When you found your place, please stand for the word of, reading of God's word and remain standing for a time of prayer following. Now I want to make it... I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, and if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. How come I come to you today, Lord, to thank you for all that you do for us. And thank you for dying on the cross for us and rising back up for our sins. And I pray that you'll reach everybody in this room. And I pray that Pastor Ben will also reach people. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Happy Easter, everyone. So glad to be in God's house today. Amen. Amen. We serve a risen Savior. And I think some of y'all just about got a little excited during worship time. And that's the way it ought to be. So don't ever think you can't shout or say amen or clap or praise the Lord and however God leads you to do that. We want that to be welcomed here at Pole Creek, all right? So today, I want to talk about how life wins. That's going to be the title of my sermon, but I want to start out by asking you something. It's probably something, if you're like me, you deal with on a daily basis. You ever go to find something that you need, like your cell phone, your wallet, maybe your keys, and you know you put it on the dresser? Or you know you hung it on the hook. Or wherever it may be that you put your stuff, you go there, you're running late, you're running behind, and it's not there. Does that happen to anyone other than me? Please say yes. Okay. My wife is so worried about me. I don't have my keys on me right now. But for Christmas, she bought me a wallet and a keychain that can be tracked by GPS. (laughs) Because I have such an issue with this. A lot of times you may have a lunch appointment with me. You may be uh, wanting uh, to meet up to talk or whatever. And sometimes I'm five or 10 minutes late. Well, the reason is because I probably have lost something that I need and can't find it. And I usually show up all distressed. And, you know, so just work with me, right? But at the same time, we need to understand that we like it when things are left where we put them. Well, today we're talking about the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had some really close friends, some disciples, some disciples. Some ladies that he had invested in, they knew his body was placed in a particular place, right, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But yet when they go back to find the body that they know was placed in that particular tomb, it's not there. Now I think they responded just like all of us probably would have responded. Even this morning in our Bible study groups, we talked about Mary Magdalene when she went and those two angels were waiting there for her and the angels told her that he's gone, he's not here, right? And then she sees Jesus, and she thinks he's a gardener. And she's all sad, and she's in great despair because the Lord that she loved so much, his body was laid in a particular place, and now it was gone. She was experiencing great despair. Well, you know, going back to losing things, and I I think we all probably have those times in our lives, I have a little uh, one-and-a-half-year-old boy named Samuel. And talking about the cell phone thing, I lost my cell phone one day. Couldn't find it, right? Couldn't find it anywhere. Thought maybe somebody had stolen it or had fallen out of the car or whatever. So we get to looking for it, and I think I had it on vibrate. Well, Hannah's calling it, and I hear a vibrator uh, sound coming from the trash can. So my little one-and-a-half-year-old had gone in there and placed my cell phone in the trash can. Great, great despair, but I was so glad that I found it, even though it had food and all that stuff all over it. (laughs) You think about Wells' funeral home. You know, Wells Funeral Home is entrusted with bodies, right? And any of us who have lost a loved one, when we turn over the body of our loved one, that is a great, great um, trusting factor there, right? Because someone that you care for and that you love, you're entrusting that security. It would be like Wells Funeral Home losing a body. It would be like Gross Funeral Home losing a body. Where did it go, right? Right? And let let me tell you, this tomb that Jesus had been laid in had some of the best security of the time. Had an entire Roman guard stationed at the tomb's entrance. And those guards would have been told that if anyone comes in here and takes this body, if anything happens to this body of this man named Jesus, you will be killed. That's how important it was. I'd say those guards were pretty, pretty concerned that morning, wouldn't you say? So Jesus' body was not where it had been left. And you know, from the very early stages, the Jews began to perpetuate a lie. And today we still see the same lies. If you go on the internet, you can search for theories of Jesus' missing body. And you'll have a list of 10 or 12, I'm going to mention a few here in a minute, of things that people who are skeptics... And think logically, we'll say, well, this is how Jesus' body went missing. Or this is why Jesus was thought to be dead but wasn't really. And those lies began to be told even back the very day that Jesus' body was missing in the tomb. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, the Bible says this, The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir... We remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days, I will rise again. They're referring to Jesus. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people. He has been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. See, the seal that they set on that tomb would have had the signet imprint of the Roman governor that was over that area of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And the the penalty for breaking that seal was certain death. So the Jews were very, very concerned, even after Jesus was crucified. I believe they understood the truth, but they rejected the truth. And they knew that, yes, this man Jesus was not just some man, he was not some psychopath. He may actually be the son of God. And just in case he really is, we're going to make sure that that tomb cannot be opened. We're going to make sure that body does not disappear. That's the link they went to to make sure that it didn't. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, that's where you see the Jews telling the Roman guard, they say, if anyone asks where the body went, this was after the resurrection, make sure to tell them that the disciples have come in and stolen the body. The Bible teaches us that that rumor is carried out even unto this day, which is when the Bible was written. So that rumor had been carried out throughout the first century. And now we even see on websites or people who study this, they're still trying to carry along that rumor that someone broke into the tomb and stole Jesus' body. There's the stolen body theory. There's the missing body theory. There's the swoon theory that says as Jesus was hanging on the cross that he wasn't really dead when they took him off the cross. And after they put him in the tomb, he actually woke back up from his slumber and his sleep. There's the drugged body theory that said someone gave him a certain drug that made him kind of produce the effects of what a dead person would look like, but he wasn't really dead. There's the twin theory that says Jesus had a twin, and either Jesus or the twin died on the cross and the other one was the one appearing to them during the 40 days. There's the vision theory that says people were basically hallucinating and seeing Jesus. There's the hypnosis theory that said Jesus was really good at hypnotizing people and he hypnotized them and made them think that he was dead. There's the spiritual resurrection theory that said, well, Jesus' body didn't rise, but his spirit only rose, all of which are complete lies. And you know what the Bible teaches us about the resurrection It doesn't teach us as though it's a fairy tale. It does not teach us as though it's just a children's story that you read to your babies at night. No, the Bible speaks of the resurrection as fact. A historical event that took place. Not an event that only certain people could see. Not an event that's only in the minds of some. Or not a spiritual event. But it was a literal, physical event where the body of Jesus of Nazareth got up out of that grave and was made alive Again, that is the resurrection. The resurrection was so important to the first century church that literally the first two sermons that you see preached after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The first one you're going to find at the day of Pentecost where Peter was preaching to the masses and he was saying, This Lord who you crucified... He is alive, and you need to believe on him for the salvation of your souls. He was preaching to Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, the Day of Atonement. And as the people were coming in, these masses were forming, and Peter was saying, You crucified him, but today he is alive. You must believe. That's the same message that we have to tell today. That's the same message that I'm going to preach to you this morning. That the same Jesus that our sins put on the cross is alive today. He rose from the dead. He's no longer in a grave. You're not going to find the bones of the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere on this planet. Because I promise you, they are not here. He rose from the dead. John Locke, an 18th century British philosopher, said this about the resurrection. Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity. So great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. I'm here to tell you this morning that it is impossible to be a Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to go through a couple of portions of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is what I call the resurrection chapter. It is the most detailed, in-depth, doctrinal explanation of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It tells us that it Happen in reality, it gives factual evidence that it happened, it tells us why it's necessary, and it tells us what the resurrection has achieved for modern day Christians and all those who have gone before us. So, I want to really touch on three different aspects of the resurrection this morning. So, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this first aspect down it's the reality of the resurrection, the reality. You know, the word reality is very uh, widely used today. Uh, You know, you watch these reality TV shows. Anybody watch those? I hope not. Thank you. Well, if you do, you're not admitting it, so I appreciate that. The only one that I might condone is Duck Dynasty. That's the only one I think we could probably get by with watching without sinning. But, (laughs) no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. But they're not really reality, I don't think. I mean, a lot of them are staged. I mean, what is reality nowadays anyways? What is, what is something real? What is being real today? What is fact? What is truth? You know, we live in a day and age where the term fake news is used, propaganda is used, and there's so many things coming at us and communications coming at us, whether it's news outlets or social media or billboards or whatever else it may be. We're being bombarded by this information, and we're having trouble deciding. What is truth and what is lie? You know, is it any wonder that no one trusts the government? No, it's not, is it? Because they'll tell you one thing one day, another thing the next day, another thing the next day. You're like, well, which is it, guys? You know, what is truth? Well, one thing that I love about Christianity is it isn't something that you have to, well, I have to dig through this and pick this out. Maybe this is true. Maybe No, the Bible is objective truth. As New Testament Christians, we believe that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is fully inspired by God, spoken by God to men who were faithful to write down what God told them to write. Every word, every dotting of the I, crossing of the T is inspired by By the Holy Spirit. So when we read God's Word, we don't have to question if it's truth. Sometimes we question if it's truth because we don't like what it says. But listen to me if something in your life does not line up with the inspired Word of God, you need to change, not the Word of God. Something's wrong with you, not God's Word. God's Word is perfect, it's infallible, and it's perfect. In in the rebuking of sin, it's perfect in the explanation of the gospel. It's perfect in the explanation of the crucifixion, the resurrection. God's word is perfect for all needs that we have. It fully explains life's purpose. It fully explains what we're expected to do. It perfectly explains the value of every life, including those in the womb of the mother. It explains very carefully the very principles that we hold dear. It is the word of God. It is reality. It is objective truth. As as he begins here, Paul, in chapter 15, um, the first two verses were so well read as an introduction to the gospel. In other words, the resurrection, as you begin to um, see what the resurrection plays out in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you begin to realize that the gospel hinges on the resurrection. And what I mean by the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. When I talk about sharing the gospel with someone, what I'm saying is, is that you are going up to them and you are verbalizing the fact that God had a son, his name was Jesus, he came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead to save you from your sins. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then they are placed with the, with the uh, understanding that either you repent and follow Jesus, or you reject Jesus. The choice is up to you, but here is the gospel. This is how you can be saved. So as we begin with the gospel and the understanding in verses 1 and 2, we go to verse 3, and the Bible says this, For I passed on to you as most important that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Hey, you know how we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Because the Bible says that he rose from the dead. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, wait a minute, Ben. How do we know that these writers were not conflicted? How do we know that these writers had a clear mind as they wrote the scriptures? How do we know that what is in the Bible is indeed truth? Well, see, what we have to understand is, is that when the Bible was written... It was inspired by God. And as the Bible was compiled and all these books were put in place, those who canonized the Bible had every book had to reach a certain standard. Basically, the writer of the book had to have been verified as an apostle or someone who was faithful to the ministry. And as we'll see here in just a minute, there are evidences in the Bible that show that Jesus in fact rose from the dead that would carry weight in any court that you would visit today. In any trial that someone would try against a criminal or any kind of a court case, there is more evidence in the Bible to to convict or to pass a trial than most trials that we see in our day and age ever have. The Bible is truth. It goes back to the Old Testament prophecies. So as Paul is writing this, Paul is saying, according to the Scriptures. Now understand that these Christians in the first century, they don't have a complete Bible like you have. They did not have the New Testament necessarily. They may have had some portions of the gospel at this point, but they did not have the full Bible like we do. So they had the Old Testament known as the Torah, where it would have gone from Genesis to Malachi. They would have had the writings of the prophets, and they would have had the understanding of Abraham, of Adam and Eve, of Noah, and all those saints of old. And in Psalm 16, the 16th Psalm in the Old Testament, and I want to put this in perspective for you, Uh, Many of the Psalms, especially those written by David, were actually written about 800 years before Jesus of Nazareth was even born. Okay, So you need to keep that in mind as we read this. But even Peter refers back to this Psalm as an evidence and verification that Jesus indeed bodily rose from the dead. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 8, it says this, I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me in Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me and your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. So as the apostle Peter is teaching about the resurrection, he refers back to this 16th Psalm written by King David. And what you'll find in a lot of David's Psalms is that there are prophecies of the coming Messiah. If you read Psalm 22, you have an accurate and detailed description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 800 years before it happened now I'm talking these books are verified their ages are verified it's verified that the psalms indeed of David were written some 600 years before Before Jesus' birth. And crucifixion was not even a common form of punishment. Back in those days. Crucifixion was not something that was even known. Back when King David lived. But in Psalm 22. You're going to see a vivid picture of a Roman crucifixion. Before Roman crucifixions were even a thing, the Bible talks about Roman crucifixions. And it talks about Jesus in such detail that it says that his garments would be gambled for. It talks about the fact that none of his bones would be broken. It talks about such detail that the prophecies are perfectly accurate. What he's saying here, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is we've got the scriptures as evidence. We've got the scriptures. We've got the prophecies as evidence. There's something beyond coincidence going on here. There's something beyond just happen chance that's going on here, he's saying. The scriptures say that Jesus died, he would be buried, and he rose again, and that's exactly what happened. But then, not only do we have the Old Testament scriptures here, but we have the eyewitness accounts. Now, we're talking about reality, okay? We're talking about the reality of the resurrection, the fact that it indeed happened. We see that it was prophesied in the Old Testament, but we also see that there were real people who actually saw the body of the Lord Jesus Christ After he had been crucified, after he had laid in the grave for three days, standing up, walking, and talking to them. They even touched him. Here Paul goes through a list of those who had seen Jesus after his resurrection. Beginning in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says this. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is also the apostle Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim. And so you have believed. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying we have factual, reasonable, understandable evidence that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. Now the first thing you're gonna say, the first thing all of these theories that I mentioned to you before would say, well, how do we know that all the people who saw Jesus after his resurrection were in their right mind? How do we know maybe it wasn't just some cult and they just were following this man named Jesus even after his death. And they just made up some stuff in order for people to believe it. Well, there's several problems with ever even considering that. The first thing is to say that eyewitness testimony is not valid evidence. Because the only way that you're ever going to know anything has ever taken place is if someone saw it and told you about it. Children, as you're sitting in class at school, you have history books, right? Right? How do we know the Civil War happened? Was anyone in here in the Civil War? Was anyone in here in the Revolutionary War? The Spanish-American War? No. Well, how do we know? Nobody's saying, Ben, the Civil War didn't happen. I don't believe the Civil War happened. Those historians that wrote about the Civil War, they were hallucinating and they don't know what they saw, right? I don't have anybody doubting that, right? Well, here Paul is giving an extensive list of eyewitnesses. The most convincing to me personally is verse 6. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Paul was uh, communicating this as though it was fact, and he wanted to know that these people had been validated because listen to what he said next. Most of them are still alive. You know what Paul did when he wrote this chapter on 1 Corinthians 15? He went and validated his sources. See, Paul did not see the resurrected Lord, okay? He he had not been present, but he went and he found these 500 people who said that they saw the risen Lord, many of whom were still alive at the time Paul wrote this, and he asked them their testimony. What did you see? Talk to this person. What did you see? What did you see? What did you see? Uh, Several hundred people, what did you see? And guess what? Their stories lined up. They all said they saw Jesus walking after his death. We saw it. Now, any court case that you ever see, the whole idea of a court case is to find witnesses. Because if someone's on trial for a crime and someone's trying to prove it, the best way to prove it is to find as many witnesses as you can that will take an oath and will confer that that is exactly what happened. You never see a court in America that has trouble convicting someone if it has enough witnesses. But yet we're talking about the resurrection of the King of Kings, God Almighty rising from the dead, defeating death. We have all the evidence we need. We have all the factual eyewitness testimony that we need. It's conferred. It's validated. We have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts today that when you lay them all out, they agree 98% of the time. And the 2% they disagree is nothing major or doctrinal. The book that you have is very very accurate. It's been validated. It shows evidence. And the only rightful conclusion about the resurrection of Jesus is that he did in fact rise from the dead. Don't you think it's funny that even all the crazy theories all have Jesus's body missing and not being in the tomb? Listen, I might, I might have a little bit of trouble if there's a couple of theories out there that said Jesus's body was found. Then you might start saying, well, maybe he didn't rise from the dead. But literally every theory, every account, whether it's lies or not, will tell you that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. When you think about the evidence, the evidence only points to one thing. Jesus indeed was who he said he was. And Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Now if you're willing to reject that, that's between you and God. But you are literally rejecting 2,000 years of church tradition, 2,000 years of understanding of eyewitness testimony and factual evidence. I don't want to be on that side, okay? I want to be on the side that believes the facts and the proof. We are talking about the reality of the risen Savior, the reality. There was once a lawyer, and his name was Sir Edward Clark, and I want you to hear what he said. As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the events of the first Easter day. For me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence and truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. You know, we don't believe with blind faith. We believe in facts. We believe in evidence. And the evidence shows that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. So why is it so important that we believe that? You're probably, you know, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're listening to me talk, you're like, why are y'all so hung up on the resurrection? Why does it even matter? You're probably saying, Ben, who cares if Jesus rose or not? Okay, we're still Christians. Jesus was still a good guy. Jesus still died on the cross for our sins. Why does it all matter? Well, thank God Paul explains that to us very carefully here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse 12. So let's read that together. Look in your Bibles there. Verse 12 of chapter 15. He begins by saying this, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? See, there were some people in the church of Corinth who were trying to believe in only a spiritual resurrection. There were some lies and some false teachers that had infiltrated the church. So they were starting to communicate only a spiritual resurrection. So Paul is beginning to confront them with this fallacy. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, I want to be careful here that the conflict was not over Jesus' resurrection. The conflict was over the resurrection of the saints from the dead. Now, as Christians, we believe... That if you accept Jesus as your Savior and you're a born-again believer, you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that there is coming a day when you yourself will rise from the dead, where you will be resurrected from the grave, where you will receive a glorified body to enjoy and live in forever in heaven. So the Corinthians were having some issues with this, and they begin to question the resurrection. So then he begins to say, one resurrection hinges on the other. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're never going to rise from the dead. If you're never going to rise from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They had to hinge and pivot on each other. So the first thing he says is, listen, if the resurrection didn't take place, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. He's still dead today. Verse 14, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. He's saying, listen, why are you still going to church? If you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you wasting your time? You guys need to sell the church property, sell it to the local Lions Club, and y'all need to get out of the business of this Bible stuff because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. Everything we're preaching is completely in vain because the resurrection is so essential and central to Christianity. Without the resurrection, we have no faith, we have no gospel. Also, the gospel proclaimers would be liars. In verse 15, he's saying, If Jesus didn't rise and there's no resurrection, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. That would have even made God a liar by saying that Jesus rose from the dead if the resurrection did not take place For if the dead are not raised, in verse 16, not even Christ has been raised. And then in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Your faith is worthless. If the resurrection didn't take place, Christianity is for fools. It's a fool's game. Everything you've ever done for Christ is in vain, right? That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, if you guys forego... The doctrine and the factual event of Jesus Christ's resurrection and your future resurrection, you have disowned and forgone the entire faith and it's no longer valid by any means. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without an empty tomb, there is no faith. Without Jesus rising from the dead and winning victory over death, hell, and the grave, your belief in the gospel is completely in vain. Verse 17, it also says, Then we... Are still in our sins. Wow, what kind of hopelessness would that be? I know where I've been, I know what I've done, I know who I am, and at my core, I am a sinner. On my best day, I sin. Sin is so much a part of me that everything I do is corrupt. I can't even have a a, a clean, unadulterated thought in this fallen body without something being wrong. Sometimes we sin and we don't even realize that we're such sinners. And now, listen, you may say, well, Ben, I'm a pretty good person, right? You know, and and I know you're not going to get this on Oprah, okay? I'm just going to let you know. Dr. Phil's not going to be sharing this with you. There's a lot of people out there, they want you to think you got it together. There's some motivational speakers that are going to say, you know what, you're fine. You just be you, embrace your truth, reach for the stars, and it's going to be all okay. Well, I'm sorry, that's not in the Bible. You know what the Bible says? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter three says, "There's none righteous, no, not one." These people who tell you that they're lying—it's it, it, human, human, humanism is what it is. It's saying that you know what? There's some good in all people, and you know if we just try to obtain that goodness, it's going to be okay. The Bible teaches that without Christ, I die and go to hell. Without Christ, I got to stand before God one day, and I've got to account for all of my sin. And at the end of that accounting and at the end of that judgment, you know what's going to happen? I'll be found wanting, and I'll have to pay for my own sin that day. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's all of us today. You are still lost in your sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Then we go to verse 18. What does the Bible say? Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. All of our loved ones who have gone on before us. Listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they're never coming back to life again. Forget it. You're never going to see him again. Verse 19, the Bible says this, If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You know what it's saying? If you have spent your whole life talking about this Jesus, living this Christian life, only to die and never rise from the dead, you are to be pitied. You have wasted your life. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? That is heavy. But you know what the good news is? He did rise from the dead. And one day, because he rose, we're going to rise from the dead. And aren't you glad? Don't you get these old body aches? Don't you hate fighting sin and temptation all the time? Don't you get sick and tired of the ones you love living in pain, living in hopelessness? Don't you hate seeing a broken world that's so messed up? Don't you hate every time you turn on the news, it's something bad going on? Don't you just hate... The fact that this world is so corrupt and so hopeless and so sad, but we have hope. As you're going to work, as you're going to school in your neighborhood, people all around you need Jesus. They need to hear about the resurrection because you know what? I don't want to see the people I love, the people I know die and go to hell. Hell is a real place, by the way. And you're not going to find a lot of churches that want to preach on hell. Hell's in the Bible. Did you know that? The Bible talks more about hell than it does heaven, and we've got to preach the Bible. We can't preach what we want to hear. We can't just tickle ears. Hell's a real place, and if we don't warn the wicked of their wicked ways, and they die in their wickedness, guess what? Their blood is on our hands. Maybe this morning you're here, and you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior. I have to warn you, because if I don't warn you today, then your blood will be on my hands if you die and go to hell. And I don't want you to leave this place without accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the dead, the king of glory, the one who had the throne of heaven was seated in heaven with all under his fingertips. He willingly stepped off of his throne and entered into humanity and took on the flesh of humanity, willingly died on a criminal's cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and rose from the dead for your sins. Let me tell you what, that's a God I can get behind. That's a God that I can love and I can honor. We work Worship a loving God, by the way. Only a God who loves would give himself for a dying world. Only a God who loves would die for a worthless sinner like me. Amen. Thank God. For his goodness. Thank God for the resurrection. And I want to leave you guys with this today. Because I know you guys are going to have a fun filled day. Probably spending time with family. And I want you to have joy today. Easter is not about being sad. Or being straight faced. Or trying to be methodical as we come to church. You know, Somebody told me about the E&C Christians. Y'all know what an E&C Christian is? Easter and Christmas Christians. right? Those are the ones that kind of come out on Easter. And hey listen. If that's the only time you come to church. Something's wrong. But I want you to know, we got a place here for you to come. And we have church next week, too, by the way. Did y'all know that? We we got it every Sunday, 11 a.m. You show up, and we'll welcome you, and we'll be glad to have you, right? Amen. But I want you to have the rest of the day joy, victory. Because Easter is a day of victory. Easter is a celebration that the King of Kings did not stay in the tomb. Amen. Let's go to chapter 15, verse 50. If you will, turn over there in your Bibles. So Paul basically takes the rest of the chapter and he talks about why you should be happy to be a Christian and why you should get fired up that Jesus rose from the dead. I like getting fired up. Do y'all? Man, I like that. I like it a lot. All right, so beginning in verse 50, the Bible says this. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Kind of a hopeless statement there, but... He says this, verse 51, Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immorality, then the saying that is written will take place. Y'all get ready, okay? Death. Has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was told of a great preacher one time. And thank God I've not met him yet, but I I, I think that I probably will one day. I know Pastor Dennis is here, and he's a great one, but he's not the one I'm talking about this morning. He's he's one of the old school. Y'all know any of those old school preachers? But he speaks very boldly, and that's one thing I like about those old school preachers, so they just tell it like it is. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, Preaches to people of every religion and not religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings with no, which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. That's a sobering thought today, isn't it? You know, the Bible teaches us that it's appointed once for man to die, and after that, the judgment. We all have that appointment with death. We all do. But you know what? Today, we worship a Savior who beat death. I want you to think about that for a minute. Our Savior is so powerful that not even death could hold him in the grave. He defeated death. He won victory over death and sin. We no longer have to be slaves to our sin. Before I knew Jesus, that's all I knew how to do. That's all I wanted to do. That was who I was. But now I have the Holy Spirit living within me, and I have a want to to be righteous, a want to to be holy. Am I perfect? No. But the God who is perfect lives within me, and he gives me the strength to do what I need to do. There is coming a great resurrection one day, and I hope and pray that everyone under the sound of my voice are going to rise from the dead at that last trumpet. You you might be here this morning simply because God wanted you to hear the gospel, because the Lord Jesus is calling your name today. And I want to ask you a question. If you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? Are you sure? And I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you know, someone you know is a preacher. I'm not asking any event in your life that took place that somehow changed your life. I'm simply asking you, has there been a time and a place in your life where you repented of your sins, you turned from your sins, and you turned to Jesus and asked him to forgive you based upon his death, burial, and resurrection? That's the million-dollar question today. Honestly, if you've never done that, Easter should be a sad day for you because you have no hope. Even though Jesus is not in the tomb, you've never accepted the gift of eternal life. But you know what? I'm not not about coincidences. God's got you here today for a reason. And did you know that you can have your name written in heaven before you walk out those doors? You can be saved. You can know that if anything happens to you, that heaven will be your home simply by trusting in the Lord Jesus there was a story once of a Civil War group, a group of soldiers, and they were stationed out in the wilderness. And they, they were given certain places that they had to stand, and they were told, you cannot move from that spot all night. You've got to keep guard. You can't fall asleep. Stay where you are. Well, the, the story goes that snow began to fall. And that next morning, when the captain came to get the soldiers who had been out there all night, all he saw were mounds of snow in this field. And he said, the reality hit him, it looked like fresh graves. Well, he pulled out his horn, and he began to play the horn, which would always summon the troops. And he said, as he played the horn, you saw men burst out of these mounds of snow that had snow falling on them all all night as they were coming to hear the the captain's call. And he said in his mind, he said, this must be what the resurrection is going to look like one day, when people are literally bursting out of the graves. You know, as we talked about our Savior... I want to leave you with this before we go into a time of worship and a time of contemplation. A follower of Buddha said this, and I want you to hear what he said. When Buddha dies, it is with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains. What kind of hopelessness is that? In Buddhism, you hope to achieve non-existence. That's their goal is non-existence. It's a sin to desire. It's a it's a sin to exist. So with Buddha's death, basically, nothing whatever remained. Muhammad died at Medina, the the the, uh, creator and initiator of Islam, on June the eighth, six thirty two, at the age of sixty one, and his tomb there is visited yearly by then by tens of thousands of Muslims every year. But they come to mourn his death, not to celebrate his resurrection. Yet the church of Jesus Christ, not just on Easter Sunday, but at every service of immersion baptism, celebrates the victory of her Lord over death and the grave. Today, I want you to go from here in joy. If you know Jesus, I want you to have victory today, knowing that regardless of what happens in your life, you have hope, you have a future, and God is preparing a place for you as we speak. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, Please don't leave this place until you make sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Would you please stand to your feet with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? Stand to your feet.